0: is my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe, it's God's word. I, believe word I believe every word is true, and it is all that I need. Yeah. Tonight, we finished Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel. We finished the life of David, and uh, maybe some of you are saying, whew, now we're going to go to one chapter a week. And so next week, one chapter a week of John. But boy, um, now, remember, I only give you 10 questions, and I told you why, the, because the, I had you reading so much, but now we're going to go into only one chapter, not a lot of reading, but now what do I expect from you? Only 10 questions, but I still expect, this is your assignment, to read that chapter, what? Every day, every day, read that chapter. And, you know, I sound like a little kindergarten teacher, and I don't mean to treat you like children, but but if we aren't learning that Scripture is something we have to be in every day, then I'll do whatever it takes to try to get you to see. So, um, one chapter, but I'll read it every day. And, uh, but now... I hope you can see by the end of tonight, I really pray you will see that this whole study of David was so relevant to right now. Um, if you want a heart like God's and then you have to want it and how do we get it and then we're going to study how in John. But David gave us such a, a picture, a real life picture. Picture and so in that first week, just a little, just a little kind of um, review. The first, you know, the first. Um, week we we read all those chapters, but we saw how we all have a past, we all have come from somewhere, we all have a, um, you know, we started with the, the dark times of the judges, and, and then came Samson, and then Eli, and then Hannah, and then Samuel, and then Saul, and all of that was to get David here. And so that is reminded to us that the Lord's got a a plan going. He's always working through this plan. And no matter how rebellious the Israelites, how rebellious they got, we just saw the faithfulness and the unconditional love and mercy and grace of, of God. And he would just, you know, get him back on track, and and then they would slip again. But but then the second week, we saw how when David was a young man and in the fields of a shepherd boy, he had time. He knew he he probably had plenty of time to study, and he really reflected. He probably really had, you know, that time to just... um, communicate with God and his relationship with God. Well, we saw it, I mean, look, look at this young kid going up and facing Goliath in the name of the Lord. And, and then we saw how when Saul started getting jealous of David, and then that at the end of that week, we started seeing how David had to run for his life. And then last week, we saw how for 10 years, practically, David was on the run And how um, he did slip. And did you notice? And I hope that when you go back and kind of review, you see that whenever there was a chapter that David inquired of the Lord, you knew it would be a good chapter. But if he did not inquire of the Lord, then it was not. Going to be a good one, and and may that be something. How quick when when crisis hit, or surprises hit, or fear hits, or something that when an emotion wants to take over, and and minimize our faith, and because the emotion is so huge, whether it's grief, whether it's fear, whether it's anger, you know, whether it's pride, it takes over and it pushes the Lord aside, and the results are never good and so last week we really saw that in David. Now tonight we we see that um, they came together to bury Saul and mourn for Saul and respect his his anointing of God and they respected his position and it was it was beautiful. In the first chapter of 2 Samuel we saw that they came together and and mourned for Saul and Jonathan. Now Saul had three sons that were killed, when we, last week's lesson, but there was one son that was not killed, and he was kind of a, um, well, he kind of thought, I can take over the kingdom of Israel. Now, after Solomon, that's when Israel divides into the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, but I didn't realize that even before it actually divides, there is civil war between the two, and there is there's a real unrest between the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah even even um, during this time, and so the the um, Saul's son and his name is um, oh what what is that again? Can hardly pronounce it. Huh? I try my best but it is Ish-bosheth. Ish-bosheth. But anyway, he takes over. So anyway, now um, uh, in chapter 2, David now is anointed over the, over the kingdom of Judah. Now, last week I told you he was anointed three times. Once by Samuel. Now, second is in 2 Samuel 2. He's now anointed as king of Judah, and then later he will be anointed as the king of Israel. And then he will join the two together. He'll bring them together for just a short period of time, and then off they go again. So anyway, um, there's war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Now, that shouldn't surprise us because, you know, you've got Saul Saul's son who's got an attitude of superiority and cockiness and he's going to take over the kingdom of Israel and things do not go well. In fact, um, in fact, there's two, well, in chapter two, look at this. I'm just starting with verse eight. Um, it said that in this. Meanwhile, Abner, son of Abner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to, to this other place. He made him king over Galilee or um, Gilead and, and, and Ephraim, and ben- Benjamin, and all Israel. Now, um, there were there were um, a couple of men that at this particular time knew that David should be the king. They knew that David should be king over all. And so um, they, they took it upon themselves, and that's in chapter four. In chapter three, we know that there's the war just keeps going between these two. And then in chapter four, that's when two of Saul's son's um, men take it upon themselves, and they're called, in verse 2, chapter 4, Saul's son had two men who were leaders of raiding bands. I'm sure that, you know, there were uh, kind of warriors and fearless men. Well, anyway, they decided one night that they were going uh, to kill um bosheth Did you notice how much killing is in this? Ah. Uh, I mean, there was so much murder and so much bloodshed. And, I mean, we see it today, too, but I think what we really see in the Old Testament is that we see God's judgment right then and there. And um, when you see how disobedience is, um, is punished right then and there, Think we are really getting a good view of how what God thinks of sin. Now the New Testament, we see we see grace. We see a lot of grace. And and um, what does Peter say? That the Lord is patient, not as we know patience, but it's not His will that any perish. Now. The Lord is, it's not that he's letting things go and he's just kind of sloughing off and he's putting it under the rug and that, you know, people are getting away with it. No, but we don't see people dropping dead, you know, heads cut off. Well, you know, some are, um, you know, out of martyrdom, but, but, you know, nothing like we're seeing in the Old Testament. But we see judgment right smack right on the spot. But what do we know about our future, what do we know about sin? When will it be dealt with once and for all? A judgment. So there's going to be judgment. Now, like I said, he's kind of letting it kind of go because it's not his will that any he perish. He's giving people time, and he he wants people to come around. You know, so I think the difference between the Old Testament severity and the New Testament, you don't see it like that, is because Old Testament, you saw his judgment immediately in the New Testament, and now we're living in the days of grace, but someday it's going to be over. And he, will, if we don't, if we don't stand before him as our savior, if we don't fall at his feet as our savior, we will definitely bow because it says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So if we do not fall down and worship and bow down and and revere him as our savior, then those who have never made him their savior, they will be experience him as their judge. So um, it is coming, the day is coming when all sin will be dealt with and people are not gonna get away with it. And, um, but now here in this particular chapter four, these two men knew David's ability and they knew that Ishbosheth was just not the king they wanted, so they took it upon themselves. And they killed him. Now, it said in verse 7, they had gone into the house while he was lying on the bed in his bedroom. After they stabbed and killed him, they cut off his head. And then, picture this, taking it with them, they traveled all night by way of Arabeth. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And said, "Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to take your life. This day, the Lord has avenged my lord, the king, against Saul and his offspring." So they thought, "Oh, now watch David. He's just gonna—he's probably gonna put us into position of power and esteem. And thank you very much." But you know from what we saw last week in chapters 24 and 26, that David, even though he had chance right there, he knew that he could not kill the Lord's anointed. Like Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. The Lord will avenge. Revenge is mine, says the Lord. And so when these two men think, and then they even use the Lord's name, you're going to see a lot of this, you know, people just use the Lord's name when they, when they you know, want people to think that they're, you know, really spiritual. And, but they, they said, now, look, aren't you glad we got rid of Saul's son after once and for all? And look, verse 12, did you notice? So David gave an order to his men, and they killed them. So David, I know that's brutal, but see, David is trying to say, you just can't live your life like that. You cannot take matters into your own hands like that. So David does now become, in chapter 5, he does become king over Israel. So now he's king over both sections. And now he does it he does bring he does bring the two together and and he then decides to bring the Ark of the Covenant the Ark of God which has been like a like a a mobile church it's been you know ever since you know the um, days when the people were on the move and the Israelites were on the move they had that symbolic church, so to speak. And it was the, it's symbol of the presence of the Lord. And it it was intricately made. Only certain people could could, uh, touch it or even not touch it or whatever. It had strict rules so it has been um, a, a symbol of of worship and God and His presence and and David decided. You know what? I I'm gonna make a town and it became Jerusalem. He said, I'm gonna take Jerusalem, the center of the two kingdoms, and I'm gonna make it ca- the capital. So he he makes Jerusalem the capital and he says, we're gonna bring that the ark of God to this place now you know it's true that, that he did want that in its place but then he had a great idea now that the two tribes are working together more and, and the capital is in place and the ark of God is in place he's saying ah i got a great idea. I think, think it's time that we build a church. We build a temple. We build a sanctuary with, that's permanent because we've, we've got into our land. This is the promised land. Now we're going to build the temple. Good idea. And then the words of Nathan came in in chapter 7. And Nathan came to David, and he said to David, this is verse 8, verse 8, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. Boy, that was quite a journey, wasn't it? From being a shepherd boy to now the leader of all the Israelites. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great. Now I want you to hear what God promised him. When I read this, I want you to remember what God said. If he would just inquire of the Lord, if he would just make sure that the Lord was in his proper place and he stayed in his, this is all what would happen. Look what was promised. Now, I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men of the earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did in the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him. When the rod of men with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it from away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now... There, that all was so wonderful. I mean, for Nathan to, to give David these words, I'm sure every part of that, that um, prophecy was wonderful to hear. But there was a surprise in there. And that was, you won't build my temple. Your offspring will build it. And And have you ever had it where you came up with this great idea And the Lord said, no. I mean, sometimes, you know, we think we have it all, all. I mean, of course he's going to answer. This is a great idea. And then he says, no. When you can't come up with any other reason why he would say no to your request, because it's so logical. I mean, I'm sure many of you can come up with something. I know I sure came up with a few. This is just, it's kind of like with Paul, you know, Lord, this thing that's just getting me all the time, I know you can remove it, and yet, and the Lord said, no, be your thorn in the flesh. You, I'm not removing it. I mean, you know, sometimes we just can't understand why he says no. And he said no to David, and it was David's idea, and yet it was a no answer. Now, how do you, how do you deal with no? How do you deal with no Usually, usually a no. I mean, you know, we—if you were honest, you were disappointed. We we sulk. <laughs> we might even um, say, "Well, then I'm just not gonna read my Bible for a while." I mean, you know, we just kind of think we're gonna pay him back. If you do that to me, then after all, I mean, I don't know. I'm just being—I'm just kind of saying that. But we we kind of look at him, saying, "Well, you know, that's that's not right," and so. I'm not going to do this. And and but look at David. Look at he did. Look at his prayer. I could not get over his prayer. Instead of sulking or self-pity or letting his disappoint him or disappointment overwhelm him. This is what he chooses. This is this is David walking in the Holy Spirit of God, and he knows his God. This is what enables you to go through life and its disappointments and the no answers because he's sovereign. Look how he says it. Who am I, O sovereign Lord? And you know what sovereign means? Sovereign means you believe he's God, and believe it or not, you're not. Sovereign simply means you believe he is God. There is only one God, and you're not it. And sometimes how much we think we are God. We know better in this situation. And David surrendered. He relinquished his disappointment, the no answer, his good idea. And he he said, oh, sovereign Lord, he started looking at, you know what? I can't believe what you did to my family. You took this little low-means family, this shepherd boy, And as if this were not enough in your sight, oh sovereign Lord. See, that should be a clue to us. Keep saying that. Oh sovereign Lord, this is how you deal with No. Keep reminding yourself that He's sovereign. It's a big word. And it's an important word when you don't don't, um, like or understand His will. Oh sovereign Lord. So David mentions that a number of times. It's kind of like I've got. To, he knows what he's got to do. He's got to train his thoughts to say, because human nature wants to overtake you and suck you into your your self pity. Sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual usual way of dealing with man? Oh, Sovereign Lord. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord, for the sake of your word and according to your will. You have done this great thing and made it known to your servant how great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, As we have heard with our own ears, and who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever. O Lord, have become, and, and you, O Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promise so that your name will be great forever. Then men will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. O Lord Almighty God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. O sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, O sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Now that's a relationship I mean you can you cannot help but see when you're walking with the Lord. look at this relationship now this looks like a heart after god's right when you're hearing this prayer, you can't help but think that is exactly right that is that is a relationship that's working both ways and the Lord promised and he is he is um, David comes through with Thank you, oh sovereign Lord. Okay, then in chapter 8, we start that David is now, see, he's walking with the Lord. He's in such a good spot. And what does the Lord promise? um, You'll be free of your enemies. So you're watching David. He's conquering all the foes, he has one victory after another. He's in a good place. Oh, now. When you're in a good place with the Lord, oh, that's so wonderful. But I asked you the question, um, does the Lord for a time, and how did I write that? Does the Lord ever give you rest from your enemies? Does he ever give you rest from your enemies? Like he did, David. Ever. Do you ever have a, like a little respite of time, you know, where you think, ooh, things are going good for a little while here kind of feels good. There's not any big troubles going on. It's kind of nice to have, you know, What? why does God give us this respite every now and then? You know, after coming through a hard, hard time, and then all of a sudden things kind of even out for a little while. And why do you think, during that time, what should you and I be doing? Regenerating, regrouping, rejoicing, um, you know, getting back. I'll tell you, when you're in a war, sometimes you're not studying like you should be. You're too busy fighting. And so when you're in a respite, then you kind of regroup and you've got that time and you rebuild and you get yourself reinforced. So he does kind of give us those times. However, there is a danger too. There's such a fine line between when he causes us to have that respite and things are good and we should be rebuilding and re- re-centering and re-fortifying. And yet, what is the temptation when things are going so good? What has a tendency to get in the way then? Self, Self does, absolutely. In fact, you start thinking things like, well, I kind of, I think I'm good at this. I think I'm, oh, I know it, and that's so dangerous. I remember I said that to both my boys this week. Oh, you are just one step away. Don't ever forget you're just one step away. You're both in a good spot right now, but you're one step away, and one, one step can get you on the wrong path. And like Paul, when when in the Living Bible it says, "Don't let the world suck you into its mold. You get off the track one step, and the world's got a sucking power." So you know, yes, it is a a blissful time when you finally have respite, and you kind of can take a deep breath and it is time to really get yourself built up and cuz you've been beat up and now it's time to heal and rebuild but the temptation and look at look at chapter 9 you see you see David is in such a good place that he even says he says who is there in the house of Saul that I can show God's kindness to now, at first, he first mentions it in, in chapter nine, verse one. Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And then it's like I think he thought about it, and he thought, no, no, no. You know, I, I have every right, because I mean, he, he could have maybe had some human thoughts saying oh, why would I want to do that if it's all what that God did to me? I mean, you know, human nature, you know, can start feeding you these memories. And even though it was for Jonathan's sake, he switched his language. And I think because, because he's in a good place with the Lord and and he is being refortified, and and he's walking in a, Walking with the Lord, he's, he, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit refills. No, no, you don't want to do it for Jonathan's sake. You want to do it. And look how he worded it in verse 3. Is there no one still left of the house of Saul whom I can show God's kindness to? And that is a fruit of the Spirit. Remember last summer we've been through the fruit of the Spirit, and kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. And it's so much more than just being nice. Holy Spirit, when He works kindness through us, it is so major. It is, it can change someone's life. It's selflessness, you're putting yourself aside. What can I do for someone else? It's totally not about you. That's God's kindness working through you. Which is which is proof, of course, in Jesus. So he says is there anybody in the house of Saul because he's in such the right frame of mind and even though he might have been tempted to think, no, they don't deserve that. No, after all, no, no, no. I need God's kindness. First verse, I think he was just trying to be a nice guy. And then I think, you know, when you're doing it in your own, you're, you know, that's when I think you probably thought, no, I, don't, I think I'm not going to do that because uh, why would I be nice here, you know, after all what he did. And then it's like the Lord took over him and he said, who can I show God's kindness to? And then his servant said, well, Jonathan's son. And I bet this was a shock to David. He didn't know that Jonathan had son. And from what we read, did you notice that in the, in the um, uh, first part of, in, of 2 Samuel chapter 4, we understood why Mephibosheth had crippled feet. When they heard that Jonathan had been killed and Saul had been killed, then, then Jonathan's son had a nanny, and that nanny felt that she had to grab that little boy and run for their life and then fell. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. So now we know that Mephibosheth became crippled when he was five years old. And now when we see this here, David is reminded, if he didn't know before, he knows now, that there is, there is a son of Jonathan, and but he lives on the outskirts of town, I think for a couple of reasons, out of sight, out of mind, because, I mean, you know, any human being, knowing what Saul had done to David, would, would say, you know, um, I don't want any of this bad seed around. So, so you know, he puts himself way outside of town where David probably, went. well, until now, David didn't even know he was around. And then he also says... Yeah, he has two crippled feet. And I'm sure that's another reason why he was out of town, because he was worthless anyway, and so what good can he be? So again, he is just over there. Well, David said, go get him. And so they knock, knock, knock at the door. And I'm sure, well, from the way David said, don't be afraid, I'm sure he thought his life was over. And so when David said, no, I am going to restore to you, chapter 9, verse 7, I'm going to restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will also always eat at my table. Which meant you're going to be like my son. Now, did God's kindness working through David, did it change this man's life? I should say it changed his life. See, when God tells us to do something, and we do it, sometimes it might be a little task, some some with some orders that come through our head, and you know they got to be of the Lord because we're so pitiful we wouldn't have thought of that. And so when when we get this idea in our mind it's the Lord saying, "I need you to be my hands and feet here. I need you to go do this." You know when it's the Lord. See if all of a sudden you start to come up with all the excuses why you don't think you need to do that after all. And then it's like the Lord keeps pressing it on you, and, you're, and you think, no, under the power of God's Spirit, I can pull myself aside, and I, through this act of kindness, who knows what they need? Who knows that this act of kindness might change their life? When God tells us to do something, he's expecting us to do it. And so when David did that, then Mephibosheth, his life was changed. And so, I mean, again, the story is beautiful. When, when David's walking with the Lord, look what he's able to do. He's able to take disappointment and, and all that, and he's able to, to even show God's kindness and put all bygones be bygones, and change this cripple feed boy, man, whatever how old he was, and Change his life all because it wasn't about him. He was doing it for God because he, he was in a right relationship with him. Beautiful. Man, it's beautiful. Look at his life. Look how the Lord can use him. Look how he can use us when we're walking with him. And then this is what I then flip over to chapter 11 and see when things are going so good. And that's why That's why you think if you get so spiritually cocky and you think that you have got this all together, and that's another thing I said to my, to my kids this week. I said, if you, don't, if you ever forget the word cling, you need to cling to the Lord. Cling is, in fact, a... That scripture, cling to the Lord. And the reason you have to cling, that means hold on tight. Because look, at, we've watched in these chapters, and I've taken a lot of time to show you, look what God promised, and look how God fulfilled the promise when David was walking with him. And then what happened, there's that fine line, instead of totally restoring and rebuilding and regrouping, He got a little cocky. He got a little, and this was one of David's weaknesses, and we've all got them. We have to identify our weaknesses so that when it happens, we catch it and say, I'm not going there. The power of God, I can state that my Goliath is coming at me, and I'm coming at you in the name of the Lord, God. And whether it's a negativity or it's a critical spirit or if it's an addiction or whatever, I'm telling you, you can, we can't battle any of that other than in the power of God. Because if you come at it with any other power, that means that you think you can handle it. And pride gets in the way. And David had a problem with pride. And it, here in chapter 11, when things are going so good, you start to get a little cocky thing that this is, you know, man, I'm really getting quite good at this. And, and I, you know what word I wrote in my Bible by, by chapter 11, and that's ego. I mean, ego. He is so full of himself. And you know what ego stands for, don't you? Easing God out. And that's exactly what happened. Now remember, look at all these chapters that we said. When God was in but now he's easing God out. And let, let me tell you, if you don't see through David that this is so you and I and how easy it can happen, you start easing God out. And this is this is the sin. Oh, I know Bathsheba and Uriah, those are all, those are ramifications of the sin, but here's the sin. And that is disobedience to God because in the springtime, I didn't know that, but but um, during wartime, do you know that when it was winter, they all shut down? It's like they they do a ceasefire, and I don't know if it's, it's cold or whether it's, you know, I don't know what the deal is, but that's why in the spring, so it's like in the springtime, it's back at it again. And in the springtime, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent his right-hand man instead, Joab. He sent him instead, and he basically said, he woke up that morning and said, oh, man, I don't feel like it. Now, we saw last week, remember, when he thought to himself, look up, when he thought to himself and he started fearing, one of these days, Saul's going to get me. I mean, he stopped thinking about all what God had done to save him. He forgot all about the fact that he, that he stood before Goliath in the strength of the Lord God. Now he needs Goliath's sword after all. Look what the change happens. And now we see David easing God out, and he just starts to say, I don't feel like it. I am King David, and no one's going to tell me what to do. I mean, I'm sure you've heard a bazillion sermons on this. If this guy had gone to war, we wouldn't have a whole different, we wouldn't have this chapter. But unfortunately, we do, which should be a lesson for us to learn from David's life. So being that he definitely um, didn't go to war, then, well, then he gets probably bored, and so he's looking around and... (laughs) I don't, have to, I don't have to get into the story. You know what happened. But it's ego, it's pride, and it is, you're on a slippery slope, one step off, you're heading, you're heading into trouble. And so then he's busted. She gets pregnant. Busted. And now he's got to come up with, a, he's got to connive a plan, and he came up with a pretty good one. And he thought for sure it was, it was fail proof. All I have to do is bring him, I mean, she's drop-dead gorgeous. All I have to do is bring her husband in from the war. And before you know it, um, they won't know who she's pregnant with. And I, I mean, I'm sure he thought, well, good idea. Good idea. Bring him off. Well, Uriah, see, he's walking with the Lord. And he knows that he can't do that. It isn't fair. Why would he be able to come home and, and be with his wife when all the other men are on the front line fighting? He says, no, I can't do it. And, and so David tries again. And, it, you know, this is the saddest thing because then what does he try to do? Look at verse 11. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. That's pitiful. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. What kind of man is this? I'm sure David is thinking, thought I had a great idea. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Job and sent it with Uriah, and in it he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest and withdraw from him so that he he will be struck down and die. Oh, it just makes you nauseous when you think, look how far he's fallen. And that's why I purposely spent the time in the first part showing you how wonderful it was when you're walking with the Lord and what you're able to do. God's kindness working through you. God's, God's, you know, promises working through you. And I mean, just as beautiful. And then you step out and look what happens. And sure enough, Uriah is killed. And, you know, he got so far gone in this sin that he didn't even realize it. So Nathan the prophet... Nathan the prophet came and, you know, you know the story, but it says the Lord sent Nathan chapter 12 to David and when he came to him, he said, there are two, David, Listen to this story. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and he grew it up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the, the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Verse 5, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then the words that we all know Nathan said, you are the man. And then the reality hit, and he saw himself for what he did. Look at verse 13. David said, Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan said, You know what? The Lord has not taken, the Lord has taken away your sin. You confess, you repent, you are so sorry. The Lord will forgive. We confess, He's faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us. He said, just know that you are forgiven. The Lord has taken your sin away. You are not going to die. You are still going to be used of him. Oh, isn't that wonderful? We could have sang tonight more and more songs. I thought of so many. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. Okay, but in verse 10, go back to verse 10 in chapter, um, thir- in chapter 12 and see, there's the long range. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. In other words, your family is never going to get along again. And if you read these chapters, you know Oh, I just loved it. I loved the first few chapters. And it was so heartbreaking, the rest of this book of 2 Samuel. It's heartbreaking. Sin got taken seriously. And to whom much is given, much will be required. And you will reap what you sow. And you might know all these cliches and these verses from Scripture on that, but it is true. Every sin will be dealt with, and there is a severe punishment for him. And And, you know, it kind of reminded me of Jacob. I remember how I always, when we talked, Genesis and we got to the life of Jacob I said you know what his trouble was he just he married he had too many women and too many kids This <laughs> is not what the Lord intended and they too just got into a peck of trouble and it was reminded of the same thing you have too many you have too many wives you have too many concubines you have too many kids and you can't even control them chapter 13 you've got a half brother and a half sister you've got you've got this half brother who looks at this half sister and oh she's a beauty and sh- and i want her and all this kind of thing and so you know him and a friend con- concoct a plan so that that this girl can get close to him you know like she's going to serve him some food so then i can grab her Oh, I'm telling you, that's why God's word. If you need a mystery, if you need romance, if you need if you need excitement, if you just want if you just want to hear some yuck, then I mean the Bible's full of everything you want for a book. And this is one of the yucks. Because it just it is it's, it's just sickening. But here, when you know this, God said, You're gonna have trouble in your family. And here's this half-brother and this half-sister. So look at in, in verse um oh, the end of 10. Bring the food here, he says, to my bedroom, so I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. <laughs> See, this is X-rated, isn't it? I mean, it's right here in the Bible. And then then she says to him, comes back at him and says, don't, my brother, don't, my brother, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? In other words, you did this to me, it's over for me. And then she's trying to reason with him on her behalf, but then on his and what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. She's trying to make some sense. Please speak to the king. You will not keep me from being married to you. I mean, in other words, I'll marry you. But he refused to listen. And he raped her. And I, Oh, this part just got me. Since he was stronger... But then, look at verse 15, then Amon hated her. Sure, after he gets what, what he wants, then he hates her. In fact, he hates her more than he loves her. So he says Sir, her, get up, get out of here. That's disgusting. No, she said, send me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. And I, you know, she's... But he refused to listen, and so he got help, his personal attendant, and said, get her out of here. So this poor girl, verse 19, had to put ashes on her head and tore the ornamented robe she was wearing. She put her hand on her head and went away weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, has that Amon, your brother, which is his half-brother too, has he been with you? Be quiet now, my sister, he's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman man, how sad. But at least Absalom took her in. (laughs) Now, here. When David heard all about this, he was furious. And I thought, you should be. And then I was waiting for the next sentence to say, and he went after him. But he didn't look at It doesn't say anything about David, just that he was furious. He didn't do a blame thing. Absalom never said a word to Amon, and neither did Absalom. No one confronted him. However, Absalom hated Amon, and I circled that word because I thought, oh, oh, this isn't going to end good. You get that emotion going. Hatred builds and builds and builds and nothing good's going to come from that. Now look, how, look how long he let that brew. Look in verse 13, two years later. So no one did anything to amen for this. Two years later. That's when Absalom... That's when Absalom kills Amnon. And so after he kills Amnon, I mean, the wrong message came to David. David um, was first told that Absalom killed all of David's sons. (laughs) And then then this this was so sad, verse 33. Then, Then the right message came out, says, my lord, the king, should not be concerned about the report that all the king's sons are dead, only Amnon. I mean, isn't one enough? But but meanwhile, Absalom fled. Absalom fled, and now Absalom is on the run. And I mean, you know, we're reading this fast, but, you know, did you notice how many times you read in the course of time? In the course of time, you know, when time was right, then Joab, which is, which is, remember, David's right-hand man knew that it was time that Absalom come back home. And so he said to David, you have got to bring your son back home. You've got to let him let be forgiving, bring him back home. You know, family's divided. Let's try to make amends. I mean, he really tried. And then it said in verse 13, When the king says this, does he not convict himself? Or the king has not brought back his banished son? And that, so he kind of made him feel guilty. And then in verse 21, the king said to Joab, Very well, I will do it. Bring back the young man, Absalom. Now, in verse 25, um, apparently scripture wants us to know what Absalom looks like. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his feet, he was blemish free. Oh, I'd like to see that. I would, <laughs> I would have liked to have seen him. And apparently he had a, had a hair too, you know. He was one gorgeous man. So get this, so the king brought Absalom back, but look, Absalom lived, verse 28, Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without even seeing the king's face. Now, Absalom, see, I mean, here again, this is what God said, there's going to be trouble in the household and such a difference between the first part of 2 Samuel and the second part of 2 Samuel. So now Absalom is conspiring. He's thinking, you know what? Um, you know this. I think I can do a better job than um, my dad. In fact, well, look at this. Verse 5, chapter 15. Whenever anyone approached Absalom to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Oh, not only was he gorgeous, but he turned on the charm. And I'll tell you, human nature is a sucker to both. Verse 10, then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, and say, Absalom is king in Hebron. End of 12, and so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin upon us and put the city to the sword. Did you see what was was absent here? What didn't David do? Inquire of the Lord. He didn't inquire of the Lord. He just said, let's go. Absalom's going to get, you know, no, I'm the dad. I'm the king. I should be able to confront this kid. But here, you know what? You don't inquire of the Lord. You're one step off. Your human emotions take over. Fear is taking over, and he is out of there. And uh, the rest, I mean, 16, 17, I mean, it's just sad, sad, sad. Chapter 18, Absalom, finally, David says, you know what, we have got to go after him. I'm so glad David came to his senses and said, you know, so David mustered the men who were with him and pointed over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds of hundreds. He sent troops out a third under one command, a third under another command, and a third under another command. And then as, as the Lord would have it, because the Lord's hand, even through this mess, the Lord is still going to use the house of David to bring forth a savior. So here, there's always, you know, through this, all this conspiracy, all this murder, all this, the Lord is still working. And look at in verse 9, Now Absalom happened to meet David's men, <laughs> happened to meet. And he was riding his mule, his mule went under the thick branches of a large oak. Absalom's head got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule kept going. Um, Some of David's men said to Joab, um, we saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Joab said, well, but did you kill him? And they said, no, we just couldn't do it. So Joab said, well, I'll take care of this. And he did. Verse 14, Joab said, I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart. while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. How gruesome. Verse 17, they took Absalom and threw him into a big pit in the forest and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. And then the word gets to David. David. Chapter 18, verse 33, the king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept as he went. He said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if I only had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Look at the pain and agony. Yeah, you're getting, you're getting what is coming to you, David. God said, Oh, it's it just doesn't it doesn't get better. Now um, it, tonight I want to kind of end with these last few chapters and toward the end of David's life in chapters 22 and 23, David does does realize he kind of kind of does a mental go back. Let's look at my life. Let's, let's just see how the Lord's hand was there. I mean, so he's, he's um, it says it's his song of praise because he realizes, and he says things like, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise. Verse 7, in my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God. Verse 18, He rescued me from my powerful enemy. He goes on in there, and, the, and when I got to the verse, we're verse 22, look, it says, For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not done evil by turning from my God. I stopped there, and I thought, You did too. And it was one of those moments that I had to sit there and think, that doesn't make sense. How can you say that? Until I thought of when the Lord forgives, what does he do to our sin? As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our sin and transgressions from us. And he remembers our sin no more. He has every right to say that. Because you know from Psalm 51, you know that David was sorry. I said it once and I'll say it again. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you confess, he is so faithful and he's so just. And I would love to insert there, and he loves you so much. That if, he, if you ask for forgiveness, he is ready to forgive you. hmm then in chapter 23, his last words. It's not that he was on, he was, you know, he was nearing his death, but he wasn't really on his death, buddy, he, but he deathbed. But he wanted, he wanted to be able to say these words. I mean, to be able to hear him say, um, That this is the oracle of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by God of Jacob, Israel, singer of songs, the Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. He knows it wasn't anything he did. It's kind of like when he had to and he looked back, you realize anything good that came from his life, it came from the Lord. And that's what the Lord promised him. That's what he promises us. And then, then it talks about, you know, his, his mighty men. And I just want to re- remind you, remember when we started the study of David, when David got the 400 men, remember when he was on the run, and remember the description of these 400 men? Remember, it was all men that owed, you know, they had debt, they were discontented, they were, they were just a bunch of miserable people who were so needy. And how he said that, when you come to the Lord not at all knowing that, oh, good, I've got this, and I've got great gifts and talents for this, you know, I can handle this. You come just with your arm. If you want to use me, Lord, you go ahead. I can't see it myself because I know who I am, but if you want to use me. I mean, that's 400, 400 of those. The Lord knew who to pick. He knew he could work with those guys. He knew that's who he can work with. And, and now you know in in chapter twenty four David um, you know it's like counting counting the mighty men. I mean, I, I think of how he described his mighty men. I think, look what the Lord turned them into. but unfortunately, um, something happened, and again, we see David's pride a little bit, a little bit a lot. In verse um, chapter 24, verse 1, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. It doesn't really say what they did, but apparently, you know. And it said, and he incited David against them, saying, go take a census of Israel and Judah. There's a little question to whether that he is Satan or whether it's the Lord just kind of let David be. David in his own self. You can look at it the way you want it. It probably, I mean, Satan does do that. He loves to use self because he knows that's that's the one we'll fall to um, every time if we don't um, go in the strength of our Lord God or plug into the power of God's spirit. And so whichever you want to look at, they're in a bad way right now. For whatever reason, David is in a bad way. And so the Lord has them take a census And the reason why David shouldn't have done that right from the start, what David should have done is says, no, because our culture, our rule is that you don't, you can't count anything that you don't own. If you own it, then you you have, you have the right to count. Like if you own this farm, you own this many animals, you can count. That's your property. You can count it. But see, Israel was not David's. He had no right to count. However, he was in a frame of mind that thought, oh, good, I'm going to count. And what does he find out? Oh, in the, census, in the census, look at in verse 9, Job reported the number of fighting men to the king. In Israel, there was 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword. And in Judah, 500,000, 1.3 million They'll puff anybody up. But look at verse 10. David then was conscious stricken after he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a very foolish thing. And I'm thinking, when I was getting near, I'm thinking, oh, good, we finally got to the last chapter. And I'm thinking, oh, good, he's got his last words, and he said it, you know, 22 was so good, 23. Been, oh. And then, I mean, just look, it doesn't take much. His, his thought went back to his own self and what he accomplished. Instead of stating it about that the Lord did this through me, he started taking the credit. But I'll tell you, the Lord made sure that he was conscious stricken. We can be we can be grateful. I mean, that's terrible when you're conscious stricken. That that's an uncomfortable boy. You feel guilt. Guilt's a horrible thing, but God meant it to be horrible. He meant it for us to feel guilty, so we'll do something about it and hopefully never do it again. Guilt is a gift, and that was supposed to be you. Was supposed to feel terrible. You know, I thought. To myself, you know, when I was reading the last, last words of this, it said that, you know, David, um you know, he wanted to build an altar, and so he, he wanted to pay for this land. He didn't want this man to just give it to him, and, and so... um Verse 24. The king um, insisted on paying the man. He said, "No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offering that cost me nothing." So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid fifty shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Because you know there were consequences to that sin, and David had to pick one of three choices. Which, what's it going to be, David? And so there were consequences in chapter twenty-four, and and so you know, and David again. See, the Lord will do what He has to do to get us to our senses. We can be thankful He loves us that much, so He doesn't say, "Well, okay, go." You, he loves us so much, and so he says, okay, I'll get your attention. Here's, here's your consequence, and boy, it humbled him. And The Lord answered prayer on behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. But the, I thought, how do I end tonight? I thought, how do we end this? And that the word silver came to my mind. You know, he paid so much silver for this property. And I was reminded, maybe some of you have heard this story, and, and I think it, I really do believe it fits. And I, that word silver didn't just come into my head for a reason. But there was this man one time that went to a silversmith shop, and he was just intrigued with how, how the silversmith could take this blob of silver, I mean, just a blob of silver, and then to, to conform it into this beautiful, I mean, exquisite, worth so much, beautiful vase or whatever he conformed it into. And so just, you know, just out of curiosity, never intending it for it to be spiritual, <laughs> he just because he was intrigued. How can it be this and then turn out like this? And the silversmith said, let me tell you the process. I take this silver in my hand, and I know just where to put it in the heat of the fire. But I never let go of it, and I never take my eyes off it. Because if I would, then it could get scorched and destroyed. So I've got to hold it and watch it, and then the man said, well, how do you know? How do you know when it's just right, if there's such a fine line, before it's ruined? He said, oh, that's easy. I go as long until I can see my image. And I thought to myself, that has got to be the most beautiful thing, despite, you know, we're just blobs. And how can the Lord take just us sinners And turned us into this. And I'm thinking, he holds us so tight and he never takes his eyes off us, even though we make our mistakes. And he gets the fire hot and we don't like it if it hurts like crazy. But he knows just how long and he keeps us there until he can see his image. Heavenly Father, thank you for this study of David. We want a heart. We want a heart like yours. And help us to see that it's a relationship with you. That's what's going to get us a heart like yours. We have to be in relationship with you. We have to be taking this seriously. We've got to spend time with you. A healthy relationship takes two, not just one. You doing everything and us nothing. Father, to have a heart like yours, it all has to do how close we are with you and how willing we are to surrender ourselves to you and let you do with us what you have to, and when we make mistakes, that you do what you have to. Father, we want your image. We want to wear your image. We want you to be able to see your image in us. You deserve it after all what you've done, just what you could have done, but instead, you saved us. Father, we want your image in us. And we pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.